This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning. I'm Claire, for those of you that you don't know me. And um, I'm really excited to be sharing with you guys this morning. And um, I'm going to be continuing in the box set that we've been doing of questioning our assumptions, with the premise being that it's normal, good, and healthy to question what we believe about God, about our faith, because actually through it, we deepen in our relationship with God. Um, we come closer to him. We mature in our faith, and it's a good thing to do. And, you know, I don't think our question phase God at all. I think he loves it and I think he even invites our questions. But I want to start today with just asking you a question. How is your connection with God right now? Do you feel at ease with him? Do you feel like things are in a good place? Do you feel at peace? Or do you feel that maybe actually, yeah, your relationship with God has known better times? that you have been in a better place than you are now. Or maybe that whole idea of connection to God feels a little bit alien to you. Maybe it's not something you naturally experience. Maybe you feel like, actually, I know God. I know, sorry, I know about God, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I know him. One of the things we offer here at Seven to help us to connect with God in a real and a personal way is Emmanuel Prayer. It's a coach-led session where the whole foundation is about connecting with Jesus, about connecting with Jesus in the here and now, and also connecting with Jesus in our past negative experiences. And, um, you know, when we realize that we've never been alone, that we are, Jesus has always been with us, and we get his perspective on it, it can bring incredible healing and restore our connection to him. And so I've been engaging in Emmanuel prayer for a couple of years now, and it's had a real overflow into my everyday life and just had an immense effect on my sense of peace and joy in life. The last couple of months have been um, fairly full on. Lots of things that could have happened that could have potentially stressed me out. Um, But I felt like I've thrived. I felt like I've thrived in it because I felt connected to Jesus. However, just last week, just the beginning of last week, a couple of things happened that just sent me off kilter, sent me into a bit of a spin. I couldn't understand it. The, the things that were happening were not that big a deal. They certainly didn't match the sense of anxiety that I was feeling. And for a couple of days, I just couldn't get my perspective. My mind was in a fog. I'd lost my bounce. Everything just felt clouded. I don't think, I think Owen didn't know what to do with me. And, um, you know, it just doesn't make sense, but I just couldn't shake it. And on the third day, I woke up and had a flash of inspiration. It occurred to me, I've lost my connection with Jesus. I'd let these issues become front and center, and I couldn't see Jesus. I felt like I was on my own, like I had to solve this on my own, and I'd lost hope of a solution. I couldn't see Jesus, and I'd forgotten to look for him. I'd lost my connection. Does that sound familiar at all? Have you ever felt like you're all alone and God is nowhere to be seen? There are other reasons why we may lose our connection to Jesus, why God may feel distant. An obvious one would be the sense of shame. 
Did you ever get caught doing something as a child or maybe even as an adult? And um, the first thing you do is you look to the ground or you look away. Like it's virtually impossible to maintain eye contact when you feel shame. Last year, I did Emotionally Focused 201, which is a six-month, Emma talked about it before, it's a six-month course exploring and dealing with how our past experiences shape the person that we are now. And one of the topics is shame. Now, before doing Emotionally Focused, I just, I thought, oh, I don't really have a problem with shame. You know, I know that I'm forgiven through Jesus for the things that I've done wrong. But I learned, and many of you probably know this already, but guilt can be described as feeling bad for the things you've done, whereas shame is feeling bad for who you are. And most, if not all of us, have a shame voice, an underlying lie that we believe or tell ourselves that undermines who we really are. And I discovered that my shame voice is, I can't do that. When asked um, to do something or when I'm faced with a challenge, more often than not, my first thought is to doubt myself. My shame voice will say, I can't do that. Someone else can do it, but I can't do that. And as I've reflected, I've realized this is something that I've had to live with and overcome on a regular basis throughout my life. This shame voice holds me back. It stops me stepping forward, basically for fear of rejection. This is what shame does. It puts distance between us and others. It puts distance between us and God. I wonder if you can identify with that in your own life. Or maybe it's not the way that we view ourselves that prevents us from connecting with God, but the way we view God himself. Excuse me a minute. There are common perceptions of God we may have maybe based on our own experiences of a parent or an authority figure, or maybe the stuff we've taught or been taught or picked up along the way. So one is that God is a punitive judge or a harsh taskmaster, a God who is very angry and only his mercy has restrained him from crushing sinners. Or another would be the Santa Claus blend, somewhere between the punitive judge and a doting grandfather. So he loves to give his gifts, but he's checking his list and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's been naughty or nice. Do you ever think that maybe you could get in God's bad books? You know, how someone might give you the silent treatment when you've hurt them. Or even worse, they may say, I'm so cross with you, I can't even look at you. Could God be like that with you, with me? Maybe not now, of course, while I've got my life all in order. But what if I stray? What if I mess up? What if I mess up again and again? Will God eventually lose his patience with me? Will he give up? Will he turn away? Have you ever deliberated over a major life decision, like which university course should I do or... Shall I move um, cities and take this job? Shall I marry this person? Do you ever worry, what if I make the wrong decision? If it's not God's will, will God still bless me? Will my life be awful? Will God still be with me? Or if I make some lifestyle choices that are a little bit close to the edge, will he disapprove? Be ashamed of me, angry with me, disappointed in me? 
Will he keep his distance, turn away, or even reject me? One of the most well-known verses in the Bible is when Jesus cries out whilst hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a common understanding held by biblical scholars is that Jesus was carrying our sin on the cross and the Father who is so pure and holy and just could not bear to look upon our sin and so turned away from Jesus that the Father and Jesus experience separation because of our sin. Now, that's not an easy concept to imagine, but we explain it by accepting that that was what was required of God to be able to forgive us. It doesn't sound nice, but that's the way it is. Jesus experienced this so that we don't have to. But what does that say about the strength of God's love compared to the power of our sin? That our sin could be that great that it would cause the Father to turn away from the Son, to be repelled, to let go. Don't we read in Song of Songs that love is as strong as death, as unyielding as the grave. It's a blazing fire that many waters cannot quench it and rivers cannot sweep it away. And even if God could turn from his son in his darkest hour, how can I therefore be certain that God wouldn't do the same to me if the circumstances warranted it? I wonder if the distance we feel from God when we mess up possibly indicates an underlying belief that God would do this to us too. Over these last couple of years particularly, I've really enjoyed reading and exploring more of who God is. And um, as I've allowed myself to unpick some of the assumptions that I've held, I've been utterly blown away time and time again as I've discovered that maybe God is even bigger, better and more beautiful than I ever imagined. And one of those insights relates to these words spoken by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As well as the common biblical understanding of this that I mentioned just now, There are other biblical scholars who offer a different explanation to what was happening there. And I want to share that with you now, because I feel that this fits better with the God that we see in the Bible and the one that I've experienced. And it has a lot to do with Psalm 22. So we're going to begin there. The book of Psalms is a vast collection of psalms, of prayers and songs that formed the prayer book for the Israelites. So it would have been Jesus's prayer book too. And he quoted from the Psalms many times in his teaching and his ministry. Psalm 22, 23 and 24 are known as the Messianic Trilogy, one that virtually every Israelite would have known off by heart, including Jesus. And it's thought that King David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus was born. And Psalm 22 describes God as saviour. And then 23, God as shepherd. And 24, God as sovereign king. 
Psalm 22, out of all the Psalms, is the most often quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it paints for us a vivid image of the scene of Jesus crucified on the cross. So let's look at that in a bit more detail. Surprisingly, the Psalm opens with the first recorded words that Jesus spoke on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with his very last words. In the Greek, this word is tetelestai, and it's a word that John uses in in his gospel account of the crucifixion, translated as, it is finished. And it's thought that the first line of this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was not only a cry of despair as to how Jesus may have felt, But it was also a declaration to all the Jews gathered around that what was happening in front of their very eyes was the fulfillment of Psalm 22, that Jesus really was who he said he was. The psalm is written in the style of a lament. So there's moments of despair accompanied by exhortation to remember and trust in God's faithfulness. And after crying out the first line of the psalm, some think that Jesus may have gained comfort and strength through praying the rest of the prayer silently from memory. He may have whispered the psalm under his laboured breath. Have you ever listened to a song on the radio that's your favourite song that comes on? And even if you just hear the first line, doesn't the whole of the song go through your head? And it's highly likely that the entire psalm was on Jesus' mind and also on the mind of those Jews gathered around. And as we read through the psalm, we see line after line, incredible parallels with what we see in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. So here's just a few of them. Verse 7 and 8 says, All who see me and mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the, the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And we, of course, read those very same words in Matthew 27. Verse 16 says, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Pierce my hands and my feet speaks for itself. But um, the dogs surround me. When the Romans crucified someone, they formed a cordon of soldiers around the cross to keep people away. And the Jews refer to the uncircumcised people like the Romans as dogs. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. We see this clearly described in John's gospel. Verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. From the cross, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And the soldiers offered him a sponge soaked in wine vinegar. And there's more. In that, I would really encourage you to read through Psalm 22, but we don't have time for all of it today. But as well as suggesting that Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, were a declaration to all those around, some scholars believe that in Jesus' humanity, remembering that he is fully God and yet fully human, completely aligned with our position and our experience, that at the brink of despair and utter desperation, whether it was a reality or not, that this is how it would have felt to Jesus. 
that Jesus is experiencing what seems like the fruitlessness of prayer that sometimes we feel too. You know, when you're crying out to God for something and it just feels like he is not doing anything at all. It's worth noting that this psalm is not just a psalm describing Jesus' suffering, but it also points to his victory. At verse 22, the psalm changes radically from death to life and ends with a great crescendo of praise and promise of what God will do. Here's some of it. In verse 26, it says, The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. And it goes on. And then look to verse 22 and 24. And if I've lost you on any of this, this is the time to switch back in. Don't miss this bit. Verse 22, it starts with praise. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For, this is verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but listen to his cry for help. Just ponder those words for a moment. The psalm seems to be suggesting here that actually God did not turn his face from Jesus. He did not despise or scorn him. And verse 15 says, You lay me in the dust of death. Or in the King James Version, it says, Thou, God, hast brought me into the dust of death. I don't think the Father left Jesus' side at all. Moreover, in John 16, 32, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about his crucifixion, he says, You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Jesus clearly states that he and the Father are one. And in John 14, we see Jesus go to great lengths to explain this to his disciples. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, the Apostle Paul says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So, why is this important? Well, this understanding of Jesus' words no longer says that my sin separates me from him. My shame may do so. The way I see myself, but not the way God sees my sin. He doesn't turn from me in his anger when I mess up. He doesn't distance himself from me, give me the silent treatment. Now, whenever we come across a challenging bit in the Bible that we're trying to understand, it's good practice to look at it through the lens of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, to check it against Jesus. Does this line up with what we read in the Bible about Jesus? Because we believe that Jesus is God. God is Jesus. 
Hebrews 1 says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So Jesus is not going to act out of character with God because Jesus is God. We, be, we can be confident that what Jesus is like is what God is like. So let's just take a moment to, che- to look at that, to check this against who Jesus is. <clears throat> so how does Jesus relate to people who have really messed up big time? Did their sin repel him? Could he bear not to look upon them? Did he keep his distance from unsavory characters? Did he reject anyone? The first one that probably springs to mind is, uh, not that he rejects anyone, so I meant to say, let's look at a few examples. Um, The first one that probably springs to mind is the woman caught in adultery. She's dragged to the temple where the religious leaders have condemned her and want to stone her according to the law of Moses. And what does Jesus do? He invites anyone without sin to throw the first stone. And when no one does and everyone has dispersed, he, and notice he's got no sin. So actually he could have. But he says to her, and neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And notice the order of that. Neither do I condemn you now Go and sin no more. What about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who, for the sake of greed and ambition, colluded with the Romans and participated in a, in a system that oppressed his own people? The whole ta- town would have dis- despised him. But Jesus said, I will do what no one else will do. Let's hang out together. I'm coming to your house for tea. Or the Samaritan woman at the well. She's been married five times, and the man she's now with is not her husband. She's there in the blazing heat of the day, likely because her shame keeps her from mixing with others. Now, Jews do not associate with Samaritans, yet Jesus approaches her and basically says, I know who you are, what you've done, and why. Now drink from my river of life. He doesn't come to judge her, but to reveal himself to her. Jesus repeatedly front and loads with acceptance and forgiveness. He doesn't wait for an apology first. Just like the story of the prodigal son, where the father runs to the son as soon as he sees him in the distance. Or the story of the lost sheep, where the shepherd goes out. He pursues the sheep that is lost. Now, it's not that God doesn't care about sin. Of course he does. He knows it hurts and destroys us and eventually causes death to us. It's just that he knows what leads to real transformation. So often we think it goes like this. Sin, punishment, repentance, transformation. But it seems that God has a better way. Sin, Unconditional love, transformation, repentance. We see this in the lives of those people I've just mentioned. You can read your stories for yourself, their stories for yourself. You'll see how their lives were transformed. Even Peter, who disowned Jesus three times after Jesus was arrested, did Jesus disown him? 
No, absolutely not. He reinstated and restored Peter in a way he wouldn't forget. Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees for hanging out with sinners. It's what he was known for. I can't think of a single person that Jesus avoided, turned away from, or rejected on the basis of their sin. Can you? Instead, time and time again, we see radical, unconditional love and acceptance. <clears throat> Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what difference does this make to our lives, to your life, to my life? If God doesn't, if God's view of my sin doesn't separate me from him. If God is not distant, but instead radically embraces me with unconditional love every time. Well, there's many things, many ways that I think it affects, affects our life. But I just want to briefly suggest three. First of all, we don't need to fear God's rejection. Most of us know what rejection feels like to some degree, whether that's been back to our childhood years, not being picked for the school sports team or not being invited to that party or not getting on that course or getting that job, right through to the devastating effects that some of us, some of us may have experienced through the rejection of a parent or a loved one. Whatever someone else may do, God is not like them. We don't need to appease him, earn his affection, avoid his anger, say the right thing, do the right thing. God is always for us, always with us, and will never reject us. Secondly, we don't need to hide or pretend we can shed our shame. We can deal with our stuff. We can be vulnerable, open and honest with God because nothing is going to shock him. We can have the courage to go to those places we've kept hidden and under wraps from ourselves, from others and from God and allow God in to heal and restore us. Emotionally focused is one way to help us do that, but there are others too. And finally, we can come to God with confidence. We saw how Jesus welcomed every sinner who thought they were outside of God's reach. He never pushed them away in judgment. He always pulled them close. Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The next time you have messed up or you are in that time of need, don't keep your distance from God. Don't stay away until you've sorted yourself out, made yourself presentable. But run, run with confidence to his throne of grace.